You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hello, I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And you're listening to the Australian Finance Podcast. A podcast where we talk about money, finance, investing, and all that good stuff. We're helping you invest your time and money better one podcast episode at a time. Yes, so please subscribe if you like the series. And don't forget you can find us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Kate, where can people go? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Rask Australia. That's R-A-S-K Australia. Mm -hmm. And I'm Owen Rask on Twitter or Owen Rask AU on Instagram. Beware the imitators. People like to copy us. Without further ado, let's jump in to today's episode. In today's episode, we're talking to Evan Lucas, author of... Mind Over Money and the Chief Investment Strategist. I believe that's his yes. title from InvestSmart. Yes, Evan is so well credentialed. We're so glad to have him back on the show. He's been on once before. He's telling us a story about his grandmother or mother getting invested. I believe it's how he finally convinced his mum to start investing. Yeah, right. So if you want to go back and listen to Evan talk about that type of thing, please go and do that. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about everything to do with psychology and money and why maybe it's not one size fits all. Yeah, absolutely. It is a fantastic episode and I'd highly recommend listening and sharing with your friends. Yes, one of our favorite episodes of 2022. Please welcome Evan Lucas to the show. Hi, guys. Hi, it physical people. It is good to have you back again onto the show. Thank we you. had a lot of great feedback from your last episode. You went viral. Apparently. And isn't it nice to talk about your mum? Yes. Uh, talking about your mum always goes viral. So, you know, it was nice <laughs> that that was the thing that went viral. Yes. And you're an author now. Apparently. Again, we yes. Yes, I've got to start accepting that. You're coming to terms with a brand <laughs> yeah, new so identity. You know, we've been talking about this before and before about like someone like James Clear, right? So he's a guy that I absolutely love writing and I don't want to talk his book too much up because it's amazing already. But he does talk about that is, you know, one of the atomic habits idea is actually reconditioning yourself to understand that if you call yourself something, you will accept it. So I haven't done that yet. I haven't taken his lesson and yep. actually accepted that I'm now an author now and I have a book that is published and it look, it's actually a physical thing. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. The brain is very literal. So Yes, it is. Yeah. Very tactile and very, very literal. And and that's one of the beautiful things that I already knew, but writing this was also sort of brought that out, was understanding, again, stuff that I knew, but actually then finding it out personally as well, which was what was the the really interesting journey about this was learning about my own biases. I knew they existed and I, you know, I was pretty aware of them. Mm. But when you actually write it down and and write it for people to understand, it really brings it home to you as well. So, you know, understanding I probably do have attention bias, which I talk about in there, and, and that's basically getting caught up by shiny things. Um, little things like that were all part and parcel of, of writing this book and yeah, it was it was a beautiful journey. I think that's the only way to say it to you because I'm, I'm very honest about it. I'm, I'm I suck at English language. I'm not a great writer. Um, so thankfully, I've had a lot of people that have put 
many, many eyeballs over it before it actually became a real thing <laughs> to make sure that it was legible. <laughs> yes. And I can vouch to listeners that the book is readable. I enjoyed reading it. I read it all in one day when I was sick a few weeks ago. That is fantastic. Um, so, so, read it in one day yeah. when you're sick is quite. Well, I had to do it so easy then. No, no. I, I wrote a lot of notes down and it's going to be a great episode. If people listening like Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, I think you will really enjoy mm-hmm. Evan's book, Mind Over Money, and you'll enjoy this episode. We're going to be talking about understanding our own money identity. We're going to be talking about dealing with the the keeping up with the Joneses, falling into that comparison trap, which holds many of us up, mm-hmm. talking about how we deal with money and relationships because you've got your own story to share there, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with decision-making, dealing with the fact that we have to give our investment plan time to work. It's not going to be an overnight thing. And even just how to be reasonable as investors and deal with um, sometimes we feel like our financial future is not in our control and how do we take back the reins on our financial future. So lots to listen to in today's episode. Mm. That is a lot. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much for that incredible <laughs> synopsis of my book in just, yes. one, in just one sentence. Um, yeah. So I think the first thing that I wanted to talk about when I when I was talking about this book and, and writing it was to understand, because I think the question that we've spoken about off air and, and what have you is, what is money to you? And the reason that I asked that question pretty much in the opening chapter is that everybody is different because we know they are personality-wise. So why would you be thinking that everybody's different? Uh, you know, the same when it comes to money. Mm. So my argument when I talk about what money is to me, and I don't want to sound pretentious, but I use this deliberately. For me, money is potential, and what I mean by that is, I think of it in terms of like electricity. So fifty dollars in your wallet is just a piece of paper until you turn that $50 value into something, right? So, and everything has value in terms of it. So, that's an experience. So, if your 50 bucks turns into an incredible night out with your wife or your partner or what have you, that is value. So, that's the $50 of value. But until it turns into that, it's just a piece of paper, right? It's just an IOU Mm -hmm. that I have a, a potential value of 50 bucks. But it also needs to expand out further than that. Money has the potential to give you financial freedom, which is something that I talk about a lot. I know the two of you are really passionate about financial freedom because when you do have money, in my view, to give you that freedom to do what you want, when you want, how you want, the ability to be a lifestyle that is so incredibly liberating, to have a level of happiness that is there. I mean, I talk about it in here as well. The uh, New England Journal of Psychology found that the most common response that human beings want is autonomy. And that, in my view, mm. is freedom. Having the autonomy to choose what you do, how you do, what you go about doing your things is no doubt the one thing that is just so liberating to, to find out. And that's one of the chapters that talk about liberation. Um, and that is understanding what money is to you. You might want to be that kind of person that makes lots of it, that's great for you. You may be somebody that doesn't really care for it, but it just needs to be there. It may be something that you need to have as a safety net. That is all of those are right answers. There's no wrong answer in that. And I think that's the other thing that when you read personal finance books sometimes, there's a feeling that there's a right and a wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I personally don't like that because that isn't fair. It's not true either because you can speak to all of your plethora of friends and, you know, some people just go, the the you know, the whole idea of life is to do this, buy a house, do that, have kids, live, end, right? Mm. No. There are people that don't want to buy a house. They want to live on experiences, and that is good for them. There are people that want to, as I said, make an incredible amount of money. That is good for them and accept that. And this is the other really hard thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking a lot, I do apologize, <laughs> that human beings find very hard, and in Australia particularly, we, we have a real problem. We call this tall poppy syndrome, mm. um, is accepting how people- and what they do with money is fine for them. So if they are, in your appearance, you know, doing things that you wish you could do, that's fine. But do not get sort of a the green-eyed monster envious with it. And do not necessarily follow them because for all you know, they could be in a financial situation that is A, dire, B, better, and that's fine as well. They are your friends for a reason. Respect them, love them for it, but don't get caught up in it. So Evan, you talk about like knowing basically what you think of money and why it's important. But mm-hmm. how do you go about figuring that out? Oh, great question. So I think you need to be really honest with yourself, straight and foremost, experience, right? There's no greater 
you know, finder, educator, mm. leveler than experience. Uh, and again, I think the other way to look at it is that be and do remember that life isn't linear. Don't expect your money to be either. So that I think is all part of the answer to the question. How do you figure it out? It is being really honest with yourself. And if you can't be honest with yourself, who can you be? So I talk about in from my second chapter is one of the big things that I've done in my career is that I started to, I can't remember why, but I did remember the day I did start using the term, you are you, I am me. Mm. To say, you're you, I'm me, and we're going to do different stuff. I've already told you what money is to me. And the way I figured that out was from my experiences, but being honest to the fact that things that I get an absolute kick out of, travel, family, enjoying things inside my own area that doesn't push my savings. So I, I am a net saver and I know we'll talk about that kind of stuff in a minute, but that makes me happy. Therefore, that is money and that is how I figured that out. What changed was when you're young and so you should be, and I'm honest about it, you're pretty selfish and that's fine. And what I mean by that, don't, don't be upset with me saying that word because you are you. And when you come out of your teens, you get away from your parents, You first it's the first time you realize that actually I'm in control of myself mm -hmm. and therefore the only thing you're in, you, know, you need to worry about is you. And that is good, right? That is good. And go and enjoy that time because that's what I did. I, when I, as soon as I finished school, 18 through to I was about 26, 27, that was how I thought. And I talk about that in the book. And again, it, be honest about it. If your love at this time in your life is to go and have experiences living overseas or to buy a house because that's what you want to do when you're young or to do X, Y, Z, that's fine. Understand there's payoffs for that, right? So, you you know, some of those people will tell you that the issue that comes with that is that therefore you haven't started saving yet, you haven't started mm -hmm. investing. You can still do that. But even, even me who now does this as my vocation, I wasn't doing that. What happened for me is that I actually ended up in a place in Amsterdam working for ABN Amro Bank and all the guys I was working around were analysts for the stock market over there on the AS, uh, the AMS. And the Amsterdam Stock Exchange is incredible because it's tiny, but it's also one of the oldest in, in, in the world. And mm. all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I probably should get on this, right? And I worked in finance, right? Mm. So, what I, again, getting back to the first part is- do not be upset if you don't know that answer to your question, Owen. Like, mm. if you're listening to this, don't be upset because I'm now 38 and I know, but I don't at the same time. I'm still learning because we talk about being reasonable and I am reasonable from the point of view that I will make decisions that are financially irrational because they're reasonable for my family. Back in the day, I was making financially reasonable decisions for me because that at the time gave me what I wanted to do. Because in the end, as I said, money's potential. And the potential it gave me to do what I found so liberating and so important to me was them. So, mm. money, therefore, in short answer, after that massively <laughs> long-winded question, no, okay. um, was the way to look at it is that money will change for you. What you do with it and how money is to you will change and accept that because you are a person, you have behavioral biases, you have psychological biases, psychological experiences. I mean, COVID, think about that and the change that's people, people. They will, therefore, adapt with you. So, money needs to adapt with you. Yeah. And as you go about your own personal finance and investing journey, I think that also changes how you view money as well. Because yeah. you, you start by seeing it just, oh, that's just something I need to live, I need to work, blah, blah, blah. And then you start to see it as as a tool, as potential, as you discover the concept of investing and that you can build wealth rather than you just need to survive paycheck to paycheck for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that change, that liberation change is a fascinating thing is to understand that, yeah, your paycheck's great. And I talk... There are incredibly smart people that I know very, very well through all walks of life that are making incredible amounts of money. So I talk about, I've, I know lots of people that are making really good money, but I highlight some of them that are making about 300,000 Australian dollars a year, which is a lot of money. That means they're in the top 1% of the country's earnings. And they their finances make me almost sweat behind the knees because they just don't think exactly as that. They live basically paycheck to paycheck because for them, money just comes to them. Mm. And this again gets back to that point about, you know, your life isn't linear and money isn't either. So the concern that I, I mean, and this is my personality, okay, and we're talking about the way we're sort of moving into an next part here, but my personality is an investor saver personality. And for me, that makes me nervous, but I'm happy for them because they are happy. Um, I, and I wouldn't want to interfere with it. I certainly talk to them about it to try and make them aware of it, but I don't want to change them because that's what makes them happy. Um, and again, I'm not envious of what they're doing either because 
they look like they live in a crazy lifestyle and I love them for it and I really do sometimes go, wish I could do that, but it's a fleeting moment because they are they, I am me. And that, I think, is the way to sort of get a, a sort of look at that point of view. Mm. I speak to a, a, quite a few financial planners and we talk a lot about budgeting and those types of things. And we have those kind of like boxes that we think people should fit in. Like there's the 50, 30, 20 budget. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, various people that say save 20%, spend 10 like whatever. Um, but the financial planners are interesting because they take it one-on-one. And one of the things that I notice that they do more often than most people is they do a retrospective budget. Yeah. So, look backwards. Don't look forwards and try and guess. So, I talk about that. So, budgets are great because they give you a, they give you a, a framework. The concern I have from a psychological point of view is they're like defined um, exercise programs. Mm. They're eight weeks or budgets are a year. So, once you do them, you've got to either restart again or, as you said, they're retrospective. So, they have a fixed time period. And one of my big, big, big points psychologically that we talk about is delayed returns. So we now live in a delayed return world. So I got, again, writing this book, what was one of my great things was going back to my university days and doing my physical anthropology and talking about the fact that physiologically, we're exactly the same as we were 30,000 years ago. Like that has been proven that, you know, our brain size, our brain capacity inside our skull is exactly the same. Uh, Our physiologically, our movements, et cetera, are the same. The the clear difference is our lifestyle, right? So, back in the Stone Age was what we call here and now. So, there's no the return was instant. You had to find shelter, you had to find food. Seasons happened, and that was that. We now live in a world where we have to make decisions for tomorrow, for today, and beyond. And that is actually physiologically really, really hard for us to do. But we live with it all day. So, budgeting is fine, but it doesn't talk about what is my money doing today, what is my money doing tomorrow, and what is my money doing beyond. And, and I think what humans can't do, and, and this is somebody that also James Clear talks about, is the delayed return is that humans can't concept that idea, but understanding that time is a continuum and money sits on that continuum. Uh, one of the things that a lot of human beings do, and the studies show that we want things to be seen here and now. So, a lot of people, particularly with a saver personality or something along those lines that are very conservative, they like to look at their money. They actually like to physically see it on their bank account or in physical hold. And money has gone from being a value changer to actually a physical thing. It's a physical asset in their eyes. And that is okay. But it does also mean that you need to be fully aware of that, that you can't necessarily change the physical currency into other assets. Uh, And so getting back to your point about budgeting and where planners sit, it's a really good thing. But it's very hard to help with a budget to go, what does actually 10 years look like from now? What does 20 years look like from now? Where does my money sit on that? How do I invest my money for that? Because you don't need all of your money today. Even if the world was to collapse, you'd still be fine Mm. if you've got enough money sitting ready to go because your tomorrow money, as I call it, which is the stuff that's probably about three to five years away, should be waiting for you. And your beyond money should also be there, which is you know 10 years out. Now, the beauty in Australia, we have superannuation. Not everywhere around the world has something like that. Um, there are flaws with super, I know that. But it is an advantage that the beyond in this country is created for you. It's forced upon you. And it gives you that idea of time continuum, is to actually understand that your money over time is doing what it's doing. And that brings in all sorts of things like compounding interest and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And one of the big challenges that we face when we're thinking about how we deal with money today and in the future, like you said, is it comes down to the way we see money and our own identity. And you had a really great info, not infographic, but a little graphic in your book, (laughs) which um, since no one can see this right now, I was wondering if you could share a bit about some of those influences that impact on how we see money today and how we deal with it and maybe how we can understand them a bit better. I think you're talking about my little box. Yes, my yes. My box. So, your, so Owen's question before about experience and how you've come to the formulation about money, what I call my box is if you think about your own personal uh, your experience with money, your relationship with money will be formed through your relationships, your parents, your partner, your work, your social interactions. All of those things go inside the box. And when you mix them all up together, they will bring out your personality with money. Now, you're clearly going to have a very different point of view if you've been through 
you know, the 80s and 90s recessions. So you talk to your parents and they will, you know, one of the jokes that everybody loves to do on the internet is, you know, how your parents will continue to tell you that, I remember living off 18% interest rates and I remember when inflation was through the roof and blah, blah, blah. Speaking of, my mum actually found a clipping from a paper from <laughs> quite a few decades ago showing me the interest rates back yeah, then. Like, look, you've got it new, better. Yeah, look at this, you've got this new loan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but the thing is, we've got lower interest rates, but the level of debt we've got is higher. Mm. And if you actually look at it, about that's exactly the same. What I mean by that is that about 25% of your pay packet on average in this country from the, the late 70s to where we are now was 25% of your pay packet is taken up by servicing your debt. So whether it was 18% on a loan that was like only 100 grand or if it's you know 2 to now 6% mm. because of interest rate rises on 750,000, it's actually about the same. Mm. So tell your mum, it's not the same. Um, <laughs> But getting getting back to that, so that that their experiences are there, right? So that's their experience. You know, for us sitting in this room, the three of us, UK particularly, are young. Owen, you're younger than me, and then myself. But we are under forty. Our experiences have been incredible because we've been through just an amazing period of economic growth, an amazing period of 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 you know positive impact mm. until the last couple of years. So COVID, and now we're going through the first real major economic shock that most of us of our generation have ever experienced. So. We're going to have a different view. So that gets back to the box, right? So it'll also therefore mean, you know, you can go even granular, go to your family. Like if your parents unfortunately had a bad experience with money, you're likely to have that. Studies show that kids actually get their money understanding up to about eight, can then lay dormant in their behavior. And once they get to their 20s, it'll come out mm -hmm. and they will copy off your parents. So right. you, you, your relationship with money right now, if you've got kids, be aware it's certainly rubbing off on your kids. It mm. definitely is. Um, and that's all part and parcel of, of what the box is, is that your experience will have a massive impact on how you see money, positively or negatively. Again, it's about becoming aware of that. I do try and talk in the book about options, about how to help you, but I didn't want to go down the path of going, this is the answer to fix that because that doesn't exist. The only way to to fix it is your is through talking about it and communication is the other part of that answer Kate to your, to your question talk absolutely talk talk with your partner talk with your friend whoever it is that you feel most open about to talk about these things it, it will it will liberate your entire ability to deal with money much better if you do have a slight problem with it if you can actually talk about it with somebody else because it's something we don't do particularly men if you are listening men talk because <laughs> um, we suck at it yeah and it's when you start talking that you realize everyone sees money differently and does different things with their money. And there's sometimes you think in your head, oh, there's one prescribed way, as you mentioned at the start, to deal with money. Hmm. But it's not until you have those conversations that you realize everyone does things differently and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So I go through in there, like, there's more than this, but I go through five different personalities just because I thought it'd be a nice way to actually sort of- Everyone it, loves a personality. Everyone loves a personality. <laughs> so I talk about savers, I talk about- Spenders. I talk about debtors. I talk about investors, and I talk about the ignorers. Um, the ignorers. I'll go with that one first because that's an interesting one. There are. You, I bet if I mean people listening to this podcast and you do in here, they are. We are going to be invested in our finances. That's why you're here to listen to this, which is great. But I bet you though, out there, you have friends that have absolutely no idea mm. about their money, like none. And it will. You sit there and go, how? But they just don't. They're not, they're not broke. They're not overspenders. They just don't look and they don't want to look. Um, sometimes that Anora is referred to as the ostrich because they put their head in their sand. They don't look at their money. They don't know where it's coming in from. They don't know where it's going out to. It's just there, uh, which is fascinating because I know the three of us would sit there and go, how? Mm -hmm. And again, that made me open my eyes when I was mm -hmm. writing the book is going, there are people like that and you need to talk to them. Um, you talk to a spender. A spender is also somebody that is just – gets money and and does it on the nice things of life and that's interesting for them but obviously it comes with you know payoffs to that is that you know sooner or later that comes to an end and you can end up yourselves in a, in a debt spiral savers have already spoken about in terms of what they are they're those people that actually love to basically find a bargain that will not buy things until it's on bargain will value money actually as an asset rather than actually what it should be will forego sometimes better opportunities so they won't actually invest or they won't, you know, move into certain areas. They'll probably die the richest people in the cemetery because they're just sitting on cash and they never use it. Um, mm. That's them. That's fine. Mm. This is this is ushering in a, a point that we wanted to talk about, which is um, getting a little bit ahead of us, but um, relationships and money. Yes, because this is something that basically everyone that has a partner will question or maybe 
just be uncertain about, like the relationship, not just with the person themselves, but also how do we manage money together? How do we prioritize what's important to us as individuals, but also as a as a duo? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to try and say this straight out from the point of view. The way I answered that question in the book was to actually make sure I went to the studies because it is becoming one of the fastest growing areas in finance to study relationships. And why that's the case, I mean, I've sort of put a lighthearted story in there again about going back to my university days and about meeting your partner and the probability that your partner is the same as you is near enough to nil. Um, you'll have same likes, you'll have same interests, but you are different people. Fundamentally, you are different people. Uh, and as much as you love them, you're going to have different beliefs. Um, so, what the studies show is that those that have the what they describe as great or very good relationships are those that talk. So, we've already spoken about that. The ones that don't, don't talk. And the top five, in the top five, top two, in fact, is finance as reasons for pressure inside relationships. That's, not, that's a known known. Mm. What is interesting, though, is about the other thing that studies show is that talking about finance is actually in, inside a relationship has been found to be as hard as talking about things like sex, talking about things like your own interpersonal relationships, your own fears. So it's in the top four things of mm -hmm. talking about that. And, and when you listen to those other three, four things, you know they do sometimes immediately when people hear those words trigger, going, oh, I can't talk about that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And finance is one of them. So that's not surprising because what the surveys find, so this is outside of studies, what surveys find is that we are unfortunately quite socially ignorant and slightly superficial that one of the three biggest turnoffs inside people are in the top five are financial things, what they call uh, in dangerous financial behavior, gambling, uh, overspending is one of the biggest turnoffs for, your, for, for a potential partner. Job and job security is also a big turnoff for your partner. It's really superficial stuff. Um, or poor outcomes or poor socioeconomics. So it's really, really hard stuff to say to talk to you guys mm. about this. But that all forms into the relationship question because unfortunately we are human beings and we do have biases. We do have, you know, behaviors and, and wants and things inside of us that aren't necessarily positive. They can be negative. Nothing wrong with that again. I've been saying it all the way through. So getting back to your question about relationships and what needs to happen with them and what the studies show is that there is going to therefore mean that you've got different pros and cons. One of you will probably be better with money than the other. That's fine. One of you will probably be better at understanding what the family needs for spending. That's good as well. It's about identifying that. It's about understanding also that you should not feel locked in to a relationship from a money perspective. So the studies are now showing millennials particularly are more likely than not in a relationship to have a separate bank account. Uh, and they have that- Interesting. Yeah, pre and post marriage. So they are huh. keeping them separate. As long as you're open about it, and the reason the studies say that this is working is because it doesn't make you feel like you're, A, you're being watched by your partner, and B, there is some control. Because again, this gets back down to that psychological term from the university, uh, the New England psychology of journal, I said autonomy, right? So that money that they have in their separate bank account gives them the sense of control, gives them a sense of autonomy, and it's working. So what it's what the studies are showing is that those people have a better relationship with money and a better relationship because they have the ability to not feel guilty to go and buy something that they want. Now, could be a new computer could be a set of golf clubs, could be a new set of jewelry, could be God knows what. But you have that ability because it's yours. Although it's still part of the family, you're not impacting the overall collective family finances by having that separate. So that that's a very long-winded answer again. That's I'm really brilliant. sorry. But that is what is now starting to come about and, and what should be talked about. And it's a good thing. right? Mm. And this is, again, the finite answer on this, communication. Communication mm. will help you no end with money. And your relationship. That's, yeah. that's a great answer. I love that. It's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and uh, there's no one yeah. right way to do anything. And I think you can try different things. Like if you're trying a joint bank account, it doesn't work well, maybe you could try doing separate bank accounts. As long as the communication's there, you could test different things to mm. see what works for you. I know in the book you talked about how you and your wife sort of got on the page and identified your shared money values. Are you able to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I am. So 
it would be remiss of me to talk about all this and not actually talk about my own personal experience because I think that would be poor. So I do talk about the fact that Julia and I, my, my, my wife, we are lucky in the fact that we are very similar, right? So we're not the same, but we are very similar. We also, therefore, because of that, we could talk quite readily. And and again, it's probably helps for what we do. As you can hear, I like talking a lot and my <laughs> wife does as well. Um, so we talk to each other constantly about you know our goals and aspirations and, and where that wanted to be. She is not as invested in investing like I am. Which is fine because you're pretty hard to find someone that. I'm not as interested in the law like she is because she's a barrister, and I'm like, yeah, you can have that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we know our differences, and when I talk to her about our investments, she goes, "Yep," yeah, and that's about it. But I know she knows, so that makes me happy, and I'm happy that she knows what we're up to. We also know that we wanted to buy their our, our own home. As I said in the book, I'm happy look, we have a mortgage on it and that's okay for us. Some people can't handle having a mortgage and want to buy a house outright. Cool. Some people have a mortgage that is ginormous and makes them you know, really feel pressure. Try and help work through that and that again is the communication thing. But we knew what we wanted. We wanted our own home. We want to send the girls to a certain level of, of education and both when my oldest and now my brand spanking new daughter were born, I put money away immediately, which we use dollar cost averaging to do, we put into that every month, come hell or high water. Um, it's growing so that when the girls are at the age that we're going to send them off to, to a different schooling scenario, it's ready to go. Uh, and so that is for us what works for us. Uh, and we are on the same page as that. And it's probably because, again, getting back to your question before, Owen, about you know how does your money scenario come about, our experiences are similar. She was went through a similar scenario to me with my family. Um, you know, her parents worked incredibly hard to get her to a certain scenario. So did mine. Mm. Um, so therefore, again, our experiences are similar, and therefore that's probably why our money personalities are similar. We're not exactly the same, but they're similar. Uh, and that's yeah, Kate. That's where it came to, and why I wanted to talk about it in there. And I'll highlight this over and over. It what is for us. It might not be for you. Um, we are happy for our friends that have different scenarios that want to do different things, and those that may look at us in a slightly way of you know, good or bad, we understand that. And, and again, as I say to all these people when they ask me that question is be happy for them and be happy for you. Mm. That's the only answer because if you're not, that's also when you'll lead mistakes because the other thing that was really clear over this is that when money becomes A, a problem and B, you get into a scenario of loss or a perceived loss, so you're not keeping up with the Joneses or what have you, every culture – doesn't matter if it's from here in Australia, in Asia, Europe, the US, what have you, every single culture is the same, that they will take on more risky behavior to keep up. It doesn't yeah. matter. And that is the most fascinating thing about all this stuff is that there is no universal way for positiveness with money, but when it comes to negative things, we all do the same thing globally, which is that we will engage in more risky behavior if we get ourselves into financial hardship. The comparison trap. Um, conversation's an interesting one because we see it in all areas of Everything. our life, whether it's mm. our work or our relationships, our money. It's very hard to turn that off. I don't yeah. know if you can ever fully turn off no, that No, you can't. Comparison. And I think that's a, good, that's a great point. You can't. And again, that's fine. It's how you deal with it. So can you step back mm. and, and, and say, I'm okay with that? I'm okay that that person has got the promotion and I didn't. That person's career is you know doing much better than mine. I'm okay with that. That person's money scenario is much better than mine, but I'm okay with that. Um, so, I mean, it's not a great example, but I deliberately use Warren Buffett to sort of say <laughs> to people, you know, people idolize Warren Buffett, and you should, right? The guy's a genius. Um, he is exceptional at what he does, but he's been doing it since he's 14. The guy's 93 now, or was he 92 this year? 92 this year. Um, and he's obviously in the top 10 richest people in the world, but that's what he wanted to do. And as I said, he's exceptional, which means he's the exception. Don't try and emulate him. Copy him in terms of his you know, his methods, but trying to be him, you're just aiming for failure. And that's where that exactly your point, Kate, comes is you are leading towards failure immediately, which means you will do things that will create failure because you'll try and take more risk or do something that just is against what you personally believe you know, in the other parts of your mind. Mm. It's Walter Schloss who trained with... Yeah. Buffett in the early days is a quote that's it's very simple. It's Warren is Warren. Yes. Yes, I have read. And that's exactly the way to put it. Yeah. Warren is Warren. I mean, the man's an institutional 
Like he's actually not even an institution. He's just an institution. Right? The way he thinks, the way he operates is how institutions operate, not an individual person. Mm. Um, and even Charlie Munger is a bit the same, right? He's not Warren. He's close, but yeah, he's not Warren either for a reason because mm. Charlie will tell you this. He, know, he knows that he's different um, mm. and he's okay with that. Have you come across any studies or anything that kind of people can take away from this as like, Oh, well, you know, I see people on Instagram. These people seem to have a lot of money. Like, is there anything that you come across in your research for the book, Mind Over Money, that uh, you thought that's really interesting? Yes. So, the way to look at that point, which is a great one, because that is unfortunately the new modern world, you know, living in memes, living in Instagram, living in, de- you know, desensitized humanization. That's, I think, the way to say that's a really complex term, but that's basically what you've described, right? Mm. If you see people in 20 or even five second lots, they're just not real. And so there is some incredible research out. The one that was probably the most catching to me was by the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia. And their study found that the most likely people to go bankrupt are those that are the neighbors of somebody that won the lotto because those neighbors do not realize they've come into a windfall and therefore can spend because they've been given the money rather than actually anything in what they do. And in the keeping up a Jones's effect, which is actually a real psychological thing, Mm. leads to that problem. So I agree with you. The new world problem is online. Watching these people cruise around in a new Bentley and having an incredible lifestyle, flying overseas and swimming in infinity pools or whatever you want to choose. That is probably not real. And we keep hearing about it. I mean, and it's it's beautiful to see particularly young people now getting online and actually pointing this out. It is not real. Mm. Um, it is not real. And if you get caught up in this, you need to ask yourself, why? Why am I getting caught up in a lifestyle of somebody that AI may not know, probably most likely not. It's a, some form of influencer with 20 million followers and you're one of 20 million. Um, they are not real to you. And again, they are the exception. They are not the rule. Um, and so, how you get around that and what the studies show is that it's about bringing that underlying behavior to the fore of your mind. So, understanding what that, you know, the argument would be that's something like attention bias mm-hmm. or avail- what we call availability bias. All the information you're getting is from one tiny spot, not all the information. Mm-hmm. And all the information would show that actually that person has either got no money or they're being paid to do that. They've had to work for many, many years to get to that level of following and and so on and so forth. But you don't get that. Your attention is drawn to that one piece of information and that one piece of information forms what we call an anchoring and you cannot get out of it. So psychologically, you focus on that without looking at everything else. So what I'm trying to do in the book is to get you to so bring that underlying bias, which you will just do innately. You will just do it to your fore because if you can start Consciously thinking about it, it'll trigger you. Hang on. Is that right? No, it's not right for me. Okay, I can stop. Why do I get caught? Okay, my attention has been brought to that. Can I reorientate my view so that my attention isn't caught up on that? That's the way to look at it. Mm. Again, unfortunately, I don't have a one-size-fits-all for everybody. But if you can start to think like that, you can help yourself. And that's mm. sort of the, the only way I can answer that question for you. Is to start mm. saying, there is something that I get triggered by with a you know an Instagram mm. follow that catches my attention. How can I break that attention? Mm. And that's okay. the thing. Even, unless you're very close to your friends, family, and colleagues, you see them living their best life, not their real life. You get the highlight reel, and you don't know where they started from because everyone starts from a different starting mm-hmm. point. You don't know the choices they've made. You don't know what's important and what they value. So unless you have all of that information and most people have things going on under the surface, you're just comparing based off those few points that you see in public. Yeah. So that's the exactly right. That's the attention. There's, and your availability to information is, you know, five seconds yeah. or, or a minute mm-hmm. on Instagram. And that a minute in real life is, is a drop in the ocean stuff. Like, so- Exactly. The question you've got to ask yourself, therefore, for that point is, how do I get my attention away from that? Uh, how do I start to go, okay, my attention bias is clearly taking over everything that I do. What other bias could actually fix me? And what I mean by fix you is, can you actually go to a point that goes, okay, that's my attention. But if I put that attention bias towards something like a, a loss aversion bias, which is that if I was to copy them, my loss aversion bias is going to peak, which is that I get quite caught up with losing money or I don't have the money I need to. 
and if you can override that, then it's good. Now, that's a negative way of doing it. The positive way of doing it would be going, that's not real and that's not enough information. Search. Find out more information about that person or that thing that you're getting a ta- caught by and why is it catching your attention. As soon as you get more information, your, you know, your attention bias goes from being pinpoint small to being slightly larger and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, you're going to have better information. So if it, if it ends up working for you, then yeah, absolutely. But mm. it's not... It's it's going to be very rare that it will, um, and that's again getting back to that point. If you can accept, that's fine, and again step back and, and not have that that green eyed monster envy. You will help your money situation something like no tomorrow because mm-hmm. then you can allow compound interest to take over. You can allow for better money decisions. Your financial freedom will pick up. Your overall position will be in a much better position. Mm-hmm. I've- so one of the things that <laughs> just there's so many things we can we can talk about. We're going for a long time. Yeah. Isn't um, it? One of the things is you mentioned the different, I guess, types of people that you come across before. People that like to spend, people that like to save, um, and everyone's different, right? But one thing, and, I, and as you said that before, one of the things that jumped into my mind was um, sister-in-law who does like he's just like the avoider, like the person that doesn't look at it. Um, and I think like a big part of that is her confidence her, yeah she lacks confidence to go and look at her finances to actually think i can do this mm-hmm. where to like how, how can you build that confidence i guess so yeah so that confidence is the big start point particularly for someone like your sister-in-law who judging by what you're talking about is an ignorer so yeah. an, an ostrich for that for her particularly i'd say it's you right so straight away you have the ability to actually get her to concentrate on her money. And it's, it is the simplest getting her to start with just go and find out which bank account your paycheck comes into and get interested in that. Just to say on the 14th of every month or if it's every fortnight you get paid or whatever it is to go, actually, I know that it hits this bank account because some people don't even know that, right? So that's a start point mm-hmm. and you can get them starting. With regards to the investing question, the next way to look at that, because this is investing, let's be honest, it is a big step up. Right, and there is a confidence part to that because it can seem large, it can seem scary, it has a lot of moving parts, and what have you. First and foremost, education is clear, right? So go and if you can, invest in your own personal time. It's investing in yourself, right? So if you go and do this education to find out about investing, you're investing in yourself, which is only going to be a positive thing. And then always go simple first. I think that's the short answer for everything. Simple first, because as soon as you start getting complex, and that means by complex, buying shares can be complex, right? Sure. For, yeah. and, and so for someone like your sister-in-law, I would argue that is complex. Starting investing it can be as simple as going out and getting a term deposit, right? Or just understanding and learning about compound interest in the real world. So that would be the next step is going, okay, you see compound interest in theory, let's help you work out compound interest in real life. Money goes in, it earns interest, it then reinvests and off it goes, right? And then you can start moving. Okay, the next step into the investment world is to go, let's look at something really incredibly simple, probably starting with an exchange-traded fund. I know it's a real passion of yours, Owen, and yours, Kate. You know, The reason you go down that simplistic idea is that it removes all of that confidence problem about how do I choose a stock? What stock do I have to look at? How much information do I need to get? What is the stock doing? Is this actually a good? Or as soon as you start, those five questions alone, right, Mm. will all of a sudden just each confidence immediately. So you remove that complexity and go simplistic. Uh, And then again, the advantage of it is that you then look at it from a compound interest perspective rather than a market's perspective. That may will go up and down and it will. That's what we need to accept. And your confidence will get better and better as you go along. But you can see, you know, it will pay you some form of distribution, the dividend. If you compound that, away you go. So again, that gets back to what we've been talking about through time. Time is the other part of that confidence problem. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over a month. And it's probably not going to happen over six months. It's about a slow and steady confidence builder. Mm. You can't run a marathon off the dot, right? Don't expect to run into your money and investing off the dot. You've got to do the work behind it. And by the work, that is going for a K, two Ks, three Ks, then out to six, then out to 10. Then you can start heading towards 15 and one day you'll get to 21 and then you can go to 42 Ks. It's the same with investing, right? Start simple. Get the confidence in understanding money, money, as in cash that earns interest, Compounding it and how that works. Step up 
and so on and so forth. Mm. I love that you used a running analogy because this is the project that I've been working on over the last year and <laughs> a half, is. trying to get to a half marathon. And it's really taught me that things don't happen overnight and it's just small bits on a very regular basis. Yeah, so I love running too. So the other reason I'll use the analogy <laughs> is that you also need to remember with running that you may be going on a linear course, going from the five to eight and then eight up to 12. But all of a sudden, you might find that after the 8Ks, you have to go backwards, yeah. right? So markets do the same thing, right? You do your 8Ks and you're feeling great and then you wake up and go, I'm feeling horrible. Mm-hmm. And you can't do the 8Ks, which yesterday you were doing you know, in your sleep. Yeah. Markets will do that, the same thing to you, right? So they, they are going the right way. And then right now is a great example, right? It, the mm-hmm. S&P is now at its lowest level for 2022 as we speak. Um, and a lot of people that are new to this world are like, I'm out, I'm out. I'm like, well, no. If you look at the average return of the S&P over the last 10 years, it's been over 10%. And the last time it did 10% in those 10 years was never, right? It doesn't do 10% on average, but that's the average. The closest it got was in 2009 was when it did a 10% because it's finished the end of the GFC and off it went. Um, but otherwise, it'll do really big up years like last year where it was 23.5%. This year, it's down the same amount, right? So net, net, okay, I get it. But don't forget, it's paying your dividends even in the S&P 500. So... Yeah, the, the 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 running analogy, I love it too because yeah. it is the same principle that do not expect to linear get towards your 42 kilometers because your body's going to go, nah, don't like that and it will be tired and it will make you go backwards. Your yeah. money will do the same. And sometimes you can feel like you're on a ro- roll and then suddenly you get stuck at a certain point for a while and then patience really comes into it, which is hard. And how, I'm pointing <laughs> my head here, how much does this come into it? Yeah, right? and, and the mental part of, of running is a really, really strong point, again, because I love the psychology of things, is that mental barrier of like, hang on, I've been running for an hour and I'm over it. (laughs) I'm over it. I'm done. Um, And pushing through that. I'm running a half marathon this weekend, actually. And I know know what's going to happen. The first three or four Ks is going to be pretty quick. Yeah, it's going to be sprinting. Then I'm going to die from about- Three to 20. And you're going to curse yourself and go, why did I run so fast in <laughs> yeah. the first four Ks? Exactly. It wouldn't matter how fast I run. It's yeah. going to be too fast. It's and then a- I'll get to 20 and I'll be like, finish line. Let's sprint. Away you go. Yeah. And you can look back on all your times and you can say, this was a good time. This was slow. You know, and you see that in your yep. times, right? Yeah, exactly right. So and that's, that's exactly and the same you get an average thing. at the end. Yep. So. Yeah. And you get the average time and it will tell you, your average kilometer was five and a half minutes. Yeah. Wicked. Yeah. yeah. And I know when you came on the show last time, we talked about simple investing strategies and that investing is boring in the middle and that's okay because there's that long, it's very exciting. There's lots of decisions to make at the very start of mm-hmm. your journey and when you're learning the first few years. And then once you've kind of set everything, not as much happens uh, for quite a long time as you wait for compound interest to kick in and you you have that urge to fiddle. But um, Which I do. Yeah. And then you- have to really rein yourself in. Yeah. Again, don't get caught up on yourself on that, right? So, again, you asked me the question before about me and my wife's finances. I talk about this as well, is that even I still get caught up by getting a little bit of exaggeration by going outside of my core wanting. So, I have got, you know, some shares that are a little bit of a speculation, but it's only 10% of my investment portfolio, which in my overall wealth, and we haven't spoken about what I call the elephant paradigm, which is your entire wealth, right? So the reason I call it the elephant paradigm, the old kid fable of had it in an elephant one bite at a time. Well, in my view, your finances, you should go the other way, right? Because people look at their finances as here's my shares, here's my house, here's my car, here's the cash in my bank, and they're all separate. Yeah. No, mm. they're your elephant. They're your money elephant. So you need to look at the other way back. So that 10% of my shares in my overall elephant wealth is actually like 2%. Um, but I'm, I'm technically breaking my own rules by being involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay, right? That's okay, right? Yeah. Because it gives me interest and it keeps me peaked. And again, I'm being reasonable, right? It's not about being completely and utterly rational with money because nobody's rational with money. And not even machines, let's be honest, are rational with money because machines are programmed by people. Um, so it, it's fine. And mm. it doesn't it doesn't break my bank. It doesn't break my money. Mm. Yeah. You shared a, a study in the book about how people that have control of their finances feel a lot more happy in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I'm speaking to friends and family, they can feel like their financial future is out of their control, whether it's because they're only getting paid a certain amount or they're not able to work for a while or they just don't know enough and they feel like they have no choice or autonomy in the matter. If someone's feeling like their financial future's out of their hands, how can they start to bring that control back? Yeah, so this is a beautiful question. 
and I, unfortunately for me, when I had that exact same point in a personal scenario, it was a trigger from, as I said, life isn't linear. Yeah. And I ran into that and in terms of the fact. And I, again, you've got to be open. If you can't be open about this, you're not going to help yourself. So I'm open about it. All of a sudden, I had a belief in my head that I was going in a certain way, that my money was always going to do X, Y, Z. I was saving and, and, and sort of had that. So it's a little bit different to your question, Kate. But, and it has to be sort of out there, it was that realization that life isn't linear. So you're not in control of your finances. What can be the circuit breaker for that? Is it the fact that now you are really feeling the pinch around, you know, the pressure of money is going around there? And that's what I call controlling your controllables, right? So it is going really, really simple and granular and getting back to your question before on about budgeting, right? Is going, do I need X amount of subscriptions? Do I need to be doing a certain level of spending that I currently am. And it's starting there, right? And then working from there. Because again, the marathon examples there as well. It's it's not going to happen overnight, right? So, so the way you, you break out of it is to, to actually step back. And I talk about when I actually went and saw my uncle about when my sort of, you know, crisis came about of understanding it will end. It will end, okay? Finding a coping mechanism right here and now that can help you deal with the short term, and it is short term, that could be up to a year of dealing with the current scenario you find yourself in. And then once you are out of it, grasping with both hands the change, because the change will come before you know it. So that's a that's a that's that's more of a behavior and a personal situation rather than the money. But the way to look at it from a money perspective is that it will end if you want it to, if you are making the right steps to, to end it. So that is understanding what is making your financial pressure come about. Is it, don't look at it from your wage. Yes, you can start looking for a new job. That might actually be helpful, but it's not about looking at that. It's going back further than that. It's going, something that I'm doing is putting more pressure on me than I can than I can cope with, and I need to change that. Um, and that, you know, that's hard. That is really hard, and I know it is, and it's hard to say. But it will end, right? And and the goal then should be, okay, if that's the kind of lifestyle you want, if that's what you're changing, that should be your third point once you get back to that lifestyle and away you go and, and grabbing it with both hands, giving yourself that financial freedom. The second point the really interesting one is finding the coping mechanism, right? And the coping mechanism can be as simple as talking to your friend, family, whatever it might be, to cope with the scenario and letting people know that actually I need to talk about this. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in trouble. And being open to accepting that you're in trouble because even the very best have it. And I talk about a story in there as well about a friend of mine who had a crisis of confidence on one day because the market finally got to him where he lost 7.5% in one day, the market. And he was just like, that's it. This is the one. This is the one that's going to end the world. And he lost control, right? Everybody does it. And this is the one of the very best, right? So why would you expect you to be any different? Everybody mm. has that problem. And I, again, as I said before, men particularly suck at this. Talk. Just talk. It'll break the cycle. And all of a sudden, you'll feel like you've got the confidence that somebody's there to support you. And again, that's what I try and talk to you about in the book is that if you can embrace that change and embrace being open, it will help your money no end. And not only just your money, it'll help you. And that's in the end. That's all money's there for do. It's for you, right? It's it. Money is a fascinating thing. It's the one thing that is just so inverted commas magical for people, uh, and it has such an impact on how we do things. But in the end, you're more important. You are more important, and your money should not be owning you. You should be owning it. Mm. You are not your money, and I think those conversations are so important. They take that fear away and the stigma, and they contribute a lot to having a more positive financial well-being as well. Yeah, mm. and- Again, getting back to the elephant paradigm, the other thing about the elephant paradigm can do is that it can actually psychologically change your viewpoint, right? So once you go from having silo points and trying to eat the small parts of the elephant and putting it all back together, you can actually find yourself feeling more confident because you're actually deliberately creating the wealth effect by actually looking at all of your money together. And you can probably be in a better financial position than you believe. And that may be a small amount of money or a big amount of money. It doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say to you is that you can therefore see your money as it's there for me and I'm not I'm not as worried about you know the fact that my bank account my only thing that I look at being your bank account is sitting at a couple thousand dollars or even less right you know there's studies show that you know one in seven or one in ten oh, don't quote me on this you know us Aussies have less than 500 bucks in their bank account um, and that that would hurt 
But then if you can start going, okay, hang on, I might have a few other little assets inside of it. And if you can start putting together and going, actually, it's not 500 bucks, it might be a couple of thousand dollars and you can build from there. That, and, and and looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. Mm. Being kind to yourself is very important very when it comes to money. Mm. I was going to say, um, we're going to ask you for your number one tip in a moment, but just before I reflect on this, my number one takeaway from hearing you talk now is just communication. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like yeah. I, I can say this, like I know you said fellas, that you called out the guys here in particular, and I think that's fair enough. Like um, just as a side note, an anecdote, I started seeing psychologists about a year ago, right? Good. And, and up until that point, People around me, this is legitimately what people were saying around me, was that it's quote unquote girly science. That's what they were telling me. Right, cool. Yeah. This was a guy telling me this. Yeah, of course it was. And I tell you what, it's just changed my life. Yeah, it is. For the better. But, and it's because it's someone to talk to. Yeah. Right? About stuff that you don't normally talk to. And you'd get this superpower that comes from it. And yeah. I just think that's and, incredible. And none of that, like, the way that I, like, oh, that's a beautiful story because I, I know exactly what you mean. And- it's being, again, open about that because if you and I can be open about this and obviously we're in the public eye, mm. then it's going to encourage more and more people to talk about it. And and communication, as I said, yeah, absolutely biggest takeaway. And the other one is time heals all, right? So time, not just with your money but with other things, will get you through. Mm. Uh, and the more time you can give yourself with your money and with your yourself, the better. So the as I said to him, I was lucky. My uncle is a psychologist, and that's who I went yeah. and spoke to um, about how I got my head around dealing with the scenario I was finding myself in because I knew that men didn't talk. I knew that really, really well, and I was one of them. I mean, and so if you can go to somebody, and it doesn't have to be somebody inside your circle. The beauty of a psychologist, right, even if your friend thinks it's girly science, just say to them, I went and spoke to this person because I needed to get an outside of point of view. I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want any of that kind of stuff. That's the beauty of them is that they are not there not only to not to judge you, they don't have any preconceived notions about you either. Mm. They are completely True. blank slate. And that is the beauty of it is that all of a sudden, those people can go, well, from looking from the outside in, have you thought about this? Mm. And away yeah. you go. Yeah, superpower. You break down a few walls there for sure. Um, mind over money, Evan. Where can people buy it? Uh, thankfully, they can buy it in most very leading bookstores. So it's in places like Readings, Dimmicks, et cetera. Big W, you've got it as well. Online, Booktopia, Amazon, take your pick. Uh, it comes in all sorts of shapes and forms, which is an amazing part of it. So I've been really, really lucky and very thankful. Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to say thank you very much to somebody like Alan Kohler and to also yeah. Effie Zohos, to Brooke Cordy and also to Elise Morgan for, for reading it and endorsing it because you know they're putting their name to it. But I want to thank them personally for doing that. And yeah, as I said at the start of this, it's been an incredible experience. Now that you know, I've done it, I, I wouldn't change a thing. It's been a beautiful thing, and, and if you are, if you do, thankfully buy a copy. And thank you very much. I do hope you get a bit out of it. It's, yeah, it's been such a great experience for me, and I hope that the experience that I try to put into the book, you get out of it as well. Mm. Amazing. So, apart from communication, what would be your number one tip for listeners who, if they have to take one thing away from today's episode? So, time. That's the other part. Time heals all, and I call that in one of the chapters. Compound interest will heal everything. It just does. Uh, time also means that the mistakes that seem so dramatic today, tomorrow, and the week after will heal. They will become not mistakes. They will just be a learning experience. Amazing. Love it. Well, Evan, we'll put all the links to grab your copy of Mind Over Money. So if you love The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, you will enjoy Mind Over Money by Evan Lucas. We'll put that in the show notes and Evan's Twitter profile and his Instagram because I'm finally getting Evan on tells me he's going to be Insta-famous soon. <laughs> I'm, so. I'm, I'm going to try and embrace it. I really am. <laughs> well, you're halfway there. We went viral last time. Yeah. So, um, mate, all the best with the book. Like, thank you. It's, thank it's you. Honestly, and it's thank brilliant. you for giving me the time to come in here. Yeah, no, no, no. Thank you for sharing some of it with us. Um, yeah, this is the number one topic that Kate and I like to talk about. So, so you've do done I. the research. And so do I. Yeah. I it, is, it is my absolute passion is to talk about the, your behavior and where it fits in with money because I think once you can understand that, as we've heard for this last hour, yep. it'll get you so much further. You can yep. know everything about ETFs, but if you don't understand your own money mindset and your behavior, you might never actually be able to make Bingo. the decision. Yep. So. I think uh, hopefully if you can share this episode with friends and family, if you think it might resonate with them, I would appreciate that. I think it's mm. a great starting point if you want to have that money conversation, like we've said before. But Evan, thank you again for coming in. Guys, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.